Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The Cleaving of Christendom, presented by the Institute of Catholic Culture, is a four-part series on the history of the Church in the second millennium. Our speaker, Steve Weidenkampf, a lecturer at Christendom College's Notre Dame Graduate School in Alexandria, Virginia, is the creator and presenter of EPIC, A Journey Through Church History, a 20-part adult faith formation study on the 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church, available from Ascension Press. More information about EPIC can be found at www.catholictimeline.com. If you'd like to follow along, the slideshow Steve used in his series is available on the audio portion of our website. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. And again, please visit our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org, where you'll find the best in Catholic education available to the public at no charge. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon Thee as a, upon a Father, and to say, Our Father, our Father who, art who art in heaven, heaven hallowed, hallowed be Thy, thy name. name. Thy, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. I just want to make one little announcement. At this coming Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, uh, Archbishop uh, Cyril Bustos, the Melkite Greek Catholic Archbishop, will tonsure Sabatino Carnazzo as a cleric and also bless him as a subdeacon in the church. So where a parish is honored that it's producing vocations. Uh, Tantri means that he cut off a portion of uh, his hair signifying a part for the whole. As you can see I was well tonsured years ago. <laughs> uh, and secondly being blessed as a subdeacon. The job of the subdeacon was traditionally as the prayer of ordination. The blessing says quite clearly that remember subdeacon that as you light the lamps in the temple of God, so your job as a subdeacon is to be able to prepare the church for divine services and particularly to light the oil lamps in the church. So the invitation is everybody here present, the liturgy at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning, right before the beginning of the liturgy, Sabatino will be tonsured and blessed as a reader and, uh, and also as a subdeacon. And then following the liturgy, uh, a breakfast is going to be served gratis for all the attendees. Thank you, Father. Someone asked which church, of course, over at Holy Transfiguration, which is my parish in McLean here. It's the local Melkite Greek Catholic Church. 
Um, and I am Melkite Greek Catholic, as Father Joseph and Father Charles are. Um, so you're all more than welcome to come. And someone else asked, is, uh, is it a Eucharistic liturgy, and as, the, as the Latin Church calls the Mass? Yes, it is. And so you can come. It starts at 8, and the Archbishop will be blessing, I hope he'll be blessing me, just before the, uh, the service begins. So um, I'd be honored for any of you to, to attend. Uh, and uh, please welcome back again, Steve Weidenkampf. Good evening, everyone. How are we doing? Great. Now, that was, I know it's kind of, you know, rainy out and everything, but that was kind of lame. How are we doing? Excited? All right. Ready to learn the second half of church history? Yeah, okay, that was not as good either. We're excited about learning church history, right? Yeah, all right. Excellent. Excellent. Now, how many of you were, I, w- I think the last time I spoke at the Institute Sabatino was maybe April, May, April, May, something like that, of this year. How many of you were actually at those talks? Just to see how many repeat offenders. Okay, okay, good. No. Excellent. For those of you who weren't at those talks, welcome. If you have the opportunity, to go on the website, uh, and you can download those talks for free that I gave a four-part series on the first half of the church back in April and May at the Institute. And so now we're going to, over the next four weeks, as Sabatino said, we're going to do the second half of church history, the last um, thousand years, so to speak. And before I get into my talk, I just want to introduce some people I brought with me to help me out tonight. My wife, Casey, is in the back over there at the table. And then uh, my newest son, uh, Martin, is there. Say hi, Marty. There's Marty. And then my my youngest daughter, Therese, is here as well. So thank you, all three of you, for coming. So Marty is the newest addition to our family. Um, We adopted him in June of this year from Ethiopia. So we traveled and spent some time in Ethiopia and then brought him home in June. So he's been with our family for a couple of months. He is 10 months old. And uh, if you you don't have anything to pray for right now, please pray that Marty learns how to sleep through the night. Because he's currently not doing that, and uh, it's been some time since we had a little baby in the house, so Casey and I are still adjusting to uh, frequent wake-ups in the middle of the night and not getting enough sleep. But, uh, so if I stumble over words, if I say something outlandish, it's because of Marty. It's not because of me. No, I'm just kidding. So he's a good kid. All right, so let's go ahead and get started in the second half of church history here. And actually, um, to do this over the next four weeks, I just want to kind of highlight that what we're going to do is, is I'm going to get into some detail on certain topics, but... For the most part, what I'm presenting is just kind of the big picture. We're going to talk about the big picture of the, of the events that happened over the last thousand years. And then I know Sabatino has some other talks of people coming that will give maybe a little more detail onto certain areas, like Dr. Marshner, who's going to come and talk about the Great Schism. I'll mention that tonight and give you just the historical circumstances around that story. And then if you go to his talk, you'll get a more detailed theological and a little bit more probably historical understanding of what happened that time in that event as well. So, because to cover a thousand years over the next four hours... Um, is, it's like, if you do the math, it's 250 years an hour. So I'm going to talk real fast like this. So if you're taking notes, make sure you're all real fast. No, I'm not, I'm not going to talk that fast. I do talk fast, but I'm not going to talk that fast. Uh, maybe we'll forget to certain subjects. But let's go ahead and get started. Um, if you were with me before, back in April and May, you know that I like to talk about learning church history from a certain way. And learning church history, I think, is extremely important for us for many different reasons. But the way in which we learn ch- church history is also important. Because many people, not anyone here, I know, but many people who take history courses or have taken history courses, for them it was just a very boring subject, right? It was just a bland memorization of names and dates and events. And you probably you know, uh, studied long enough to memorize the you know, pertinent information you needed to know. You took the test, and then you forgot it, right? Um, that's how a lot of people have studied history and maybe even church history. But what I, how I like to present history, and church history in particular, is understanding church history as our family history. That's really the best way in which to see what we're going to do 
over the next four weeks. And really what we're studying is not just these bland names and dates and events that have no meaning in our lives, but rather the events of our, of the, of our family, of the brothers and sisters who have come before us in the Lord. Right? All the saints and sinners, all the members of the church who came before us are our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus because we comprise the one body of Christ, the family, the mystical body of Jesus Christ. We're a family. So when we study church history, we're studying the history of our family. Just as we would study the history of our own personal families, like my family, the Weidenkopf family, so too when we study church history and we see these different events, we're studying our family. And that's very important because it'll, it helps us to approach the subject from a little different perspective, I think. A little different perspective than other people who might study church history or even try to interpret church history look at it. All right? so it's very important for us to have that particular understanding. Now, it's obviously very difficult to try to break down 2,000 years, or in this case over the next four weeks, 1,000 years of church history. There's a lot going on. There are a lot of names, a lot of dates, a lot of events, a lot of stories that we could tell about our brothers and sisters. So how do we make sense of that mass amount of information, that massive, massive amount of detail? Well, one way in which we can, I think, help to learn the story of the church is to break it down into time periods. And many of you who were here for my talks in April and May, you know that I put together a, a program on adult, adult faith formation program to study church history called EPIC. And I have more material over there with my wife and my daughter, and feel free at the end of the night to obviously go and look at that if you haven't had a chance to look at it. But I've taken church history the 2,000 years and broken it into 12 different time periods. And each time period I've given a color, and that color is associated with the main event of the time period, so it helps us remember what's going on during that period of time. So I'm going to talk about these time periods as we go along for the next four uh, weeks together. All right, so here are our time periods. This, over the next four weeks, we're going to study these uh, time periods 5 through 12. So tonight we're going to look at crusaders and scholars. Next week, we lead, weak leaders in schism, protesters and defenders, and then so on. And we will you know, finish up at the end of the four weeks with a discussion on, on the threshold of hope, the pontificate of John Paul II, and the current state of the church today. All right? So let's go ahead and get into our first time period we're going to talk about tonight, crusaders and scholars. And this is a time period in the history of the church from the year 1000 to the year 1299, or about 300 years worth of time uh, in the church's history, in the history of Western civilization. And the color I've chosen for this time period is navy blue. And the reason why I chose navy blue for this particular time period is because when we look at the Crusades, most of the Crusaders came from the land of France. Most of them, majority. There were other places in Europe they came from, but the majority of them came from France, especially on the First Crusade. And so that one of the traditional colors associated with the land of France is blue, navy blue. So that's why we used that color so that we know what's going on. Now, if we were to look at this, these 300 years in church history, one historian has called these 300 years in church history the glory of Christendom. This is when Christendom is at its height. This is when the church and Western civilization, Western secular powers were closely united. Right? Not, perfect, not in a perfect unity and not the same, but they were very closely united. This is an age of intense faith. This is an age of reform in the papacy. This is when the papacy comes out of being controlled by secular rulers on the Italian peninsula and really establishes itself independently. And it will culminate in the pontificate of Pope Innocent III in the latter part of the 12th century into the early part of the 13th century. And so we have a great time of renewal. We have a time of intense activity in many different areas of the church. And there are really three main areas of intense activity in the church's history during these 300 years. And the first is, well, all three we'll look at tonight, the first that we'll look at is the military area, the military sphere of, of Western civilization in the church. And this is the Crusades, and we'll look at that in more detail in a moment. 
The second area of intense activity during these 300 years is the spiritual sphere, the spiritual area. This is during the time, the three, this 300-year period of time, where we see the rise of new religious orders, religious orders that will fundamentally change the church for, in a good way and will fundamentally change even Western society. And these orders still exist today and are still very effective in the church and the world. And this is the rise of the mendicant orders or the orders that exist through begging the Franciscans and the Dominicans. And we'll talk a little bit more about Francis and Dominic tonight. And then the third area of intense activity is this intellectual area. This is the area of, as our time period says, the second half of our time period, scholars. This is the period of time of the scholastic theology, when we have a huge increase in the writings of these great theologians that occupy the history of the church. Names like St. Bonaventure, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, St. Anselm of Canterbury, and others. They all live during this period of time and write during this period of time. So it's a lot of things going on during this period of time in church history. Now, one of the ways in which we can kind of just take a, a glimpse into how the church and society were, were really united and together and how much this was an age of faith is to take a look at the cathedrals, the Gothic cathedrals in particular that, that still exist in Europe today, some of which I have on the screen here for you, pictures of them. And so this, these cathedrals really illustrate for us that the people who lived during this time were people of great faith. Because it took an immense amount of, of time, an immense amount of time, of, uh, immense amount of money, and of effort to construct these grandiose Gothic cathedrals. And they were all built for the greater glory of God and for the worship, you know, for worship of God. So if you've ever been to these great cathedrals, or even just one of them, they're just magnificent, right? I mean, you walk in there and you just, you're filled with a sense of immensity of God. God is almighty, he's powerful, and your, your soul is just lifted up because of the architecture, into wanting to worship and be in the presence of God. So they're fantastic structures, and it gives sense, it helps give us, paint a picture of what was going on in our family history during this period of time. Now, to be more specific and get into our first event that we're going to look at, this is the, the event that, that uh, I mentioned and Sabatino mentioned about Dr. Marshner coming and giving a talk next Saturday on this issue, and this is the Great Schism. This is an event that really impacts the church. It still impacts the church today, and it has a really an important bearing on the rise of the crusading movement as well. Now, the brief background to the Great Schism that occurs here in 1054, the split between the eastern half and the western half of the church, there is a, there's a huge a lot of background to this story. There's a lot of things that ha have happened over the centuries. You could really kind of trace the beginnings of this tension that leads up to this split in the middle part of the 11th century here all the way back to the reign of the Emperor Diocletian, the Roman Emperor Diocletian, all the way back into the late 3rd century, early 4th century. Because it was Diocletian who split the Roman Empire into half, into an eastern and western half, right? And then not only did he split the empire in a half, but he also broke the empire up into smaller local jurisdictions. And those small, smaller local jurisdictions he named after himself, he called them dioceses. So if you ever wonder where we get the name, the Diocese of Arlington, right? It comes all the way back to the Roman Emperor Diocletian. So Diocletian splits the empire, and then things begin to, as church history moves forward, then there kind of the western half of the empire develops politically, culturally, socially different from the eastern half of the empire. And then there's tensions, there's theological tensions that, that arise between the two halves of the churches. There's political tension over the course of these centuries, from the 4th century all the way up to the, 10th, to the 11th century. And then there's even in the 9th century, there's a, a, a schism that erupts between east and west, which is somewhat brief and is solved in a fairly short period of time. But now we come to the 11th century. And so building up over all these centuries is tension politically, religiously, theologically rather, um, you know, all kinds of different tension. Now, culturally, 
is risen in the church. And so what happens that causes the break, the immediate story, the immediate events that lead up to this break between the two halves of the church, is this, that at this time, in the middle part of the 1050s, the patriarch of Constantinople was a man by the name of Patriarch Michael Chelarius. And Michael Chelarius, in the year 1052, outlaws the celebration of the Latin Rite of Mass in Constantinople. So there was a group of Westerners in Constantinople this time who celebrated Mass in accordance with the Latin way, the Western way of celebrating Mass, which is different, as most of us know, from the Eastern way in celebrating Mass. What happens at Mass is the same thing, right? but the way in which the Mass is celebrated is different. It's still that way today. Right? So in 1052, Michael Chelarius outlaws the celebration of the Latin Rite, and this causes, obviously, a huge problem for that Western community in Constantinople. So the Pope in Rome gets wind of this, this legislation by the Patriarch, and the Pope in Rome at this time is Pope St. Leo IX. And Pope St. Leo IX hears about this, and he's obviously very concerned about what's going on, and he, needs to, he wants to try to address it. Now, he has a small bit of a problem. Because Pope St. Leo IX is dealing with another matter that's really important, that's greatly affecting him personally. And how it's affecting him personally is that at this time, Pope St. Leo IX is sitting in prison. He's, in, he's being held captive by the Normans. Now, the Normans, as most of us know, they, they're a the, uh, Germanic-based, ethnically-based tribe up from the uh, uh, northern region of France, the coast in the Normandy. They come down in the 11th century from Normandy through the Straits of Gibraltar into the Mediterranean, and they begin to conquer land. In particular, they take over the island of Sicily. And then they launch from Sicily an invasion force into Italy, and they begin marching up the Italian peninsula to Rome. Now, remember how I started off by saying that this is a period of time when the papacy begins to try to become independent of the control of secular rulers. And there's a very fierce reform, papal reform movement going on during this period of time. So Pope St. Leo sees this and hears of this Norman army coming up to Rome, and he's very concerned. He's concerned that the Normans are going to come, conquer Rome, and they're going to make him a puppet, or even worse, get rid of him and put someone else up as pope. And he, does, he wants to prevent that. So to prevent that, he organizes and raises an army as best as he can, and he marches off to battle against the Normans. Now, this was not overwhelmingly a smart thing to do, because the Normans were the fiercest, bravest, and most advanced warriors in Europe at this time. So this is like a small nation state taking on the United States, so to speak, in, in terms of conflict and military battles. So the Pope loses this battle, he's captured, and he's put into prison. He hears wind while he's in prison of what's going on in Constantinople, and he decides to send a letter to the patriarch. And he has as one of his trusted advisors, the man who helps write this letter, is a man by the name of Cardinal Humbert. And Cardinal Humbert is very, very important because of one main keen, or key skill he has. He's one of the few people in the Western world at this time who knew how to write and speak Greek. For the most part, in the Western part of the world, the Greek language, writing and speaking it, had really fallen away. There weren't too many people educated enough to even know how to do so. So Humbert knew how to do it, so that, was, that made him obviously very important in this matter. So he discusses things with the Pope. He sends a letter off to the Patriarch to try to address the situation. It soon becomes clear, though, that really the only way to solve this problem is to actually send, is to go in person, send someone in person to deal and to discuss things with the Patriarch. Obviously, the Pope can't go because he's being held captive by the Normans. So he sends Cardinal Humbert. Important that he sends Cardinal Humbert because Cardinal Humbert knows Latin or knows Greek and can speak Greek and, uh, and can write Greek. But there was one fatal flaw that Humbert had. Humbert had, we would call it today, an anger management issue. <laughs> he was a man who was of, of keen intelligence, brilliant, but a man who had absolutely no patience whatsoever. 
a man who was very much motivated by you know, issuing or dealing in polemics, who's very caustic in his personality, a man who could easily lose his temper. So not the skills you want in a diplomat, right, in a very precarious situation. In the skills of a diplomat, you want somebody who you know, can listen and you know, speak very coherently and calmly, not easily riled. That does not describe Cardinal Humbert at all. But Cardinal Humbert is chosen. He goes to Constantinople. He begins almost immediately this kind of pamphlet war with Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox monks in Constantinople, you know, criticizing their theology. They respond back and forth. It's just it's a real nightmare. And so no, they get nowhere during the course of this, this whole um, discussion and the whole time that, that Humbert is there. Eventually, in the summer of 1054, Humbert gets so fed up with the situation that he decides on his own authority to march into, along with his fellow companions, march into the church of San Sofia, the great church, the biggest church, the largest church in, the, in Christendom at the time, built by the great uh, emperor Justinian back in the 6th century. He marches into San Sofia, and he slaps down on the main altar a bill of excommunication, excommunicating Patriarch Michael. Now, he had no authority to do this whatsoever. He had no authority to do it, not only because he's a cardinal and he's not really supposed to excommunicate a patriarch, but he also had no authority because Pope St. Leo IX had died in prison. Now, once the pope dies, you have no authority as a papal legate to do anything, right? Because as a papal legate, you represent the pope. Once the pope is dead, there's not a new pope. You're not representing anybody but yourself. But that didn't start, stop Cardinal Humbert, so he watches into the cathedral, slaps down this bill of excommunication. Patriarch Michael is, as you can imagine, not very pleased at this insult from the papal uh, legate. So he takes the bull, he takes the bull of excommunication, burns it, and then issues his own bill of excommunication against Humbert and the Pope as well, who, as we said, was dead. So we have this situation, it's very, actually kind of comical, you couldn't really make this kind of stuff up, um, but this is really what happened. This is what happens you know, when, when fallen yet redeemed creatures operate in the history of the world, and they operate in accordance with their free will. So this happens, the churches then split, and over time, there's a brief moment, as Dr. Marshall will get into in more detail, when the, during the course of the next several centuries where the churches will briefly reunite. But for the most part, the schism continues and it stays in existence even today, as we all know, sadly. Right? John Paul II tried to address this, tried to work diligently to bring about a reunion of the two halves of the church, even going so far as to say that the church is only breathing with one lung right now. That the, church, the lungs, the body of the church has to breathe with both lungs, the east and the western lungs. They have to breathe together in unity for the body to be healthy. And right now it's not. Benedict XVI is trying to continue, obviously, to try to bring about some kind of reconciliation. It's very difficult for a lot of different reasons. Theological, historical, cultural. So many different reasons preventing uh, this coming back, the, the two halves coming back together. Now, you know, most of us know that things take a long time to happen in the church. The church kind of slow on doing certain things occasionally. Um, these excommunications, these mutual excommunications that were applied in 1054 were not lifted until the year 1965. So, you know, things move slowly in the church. This is the prime example of how, how slow things actually move. It was Paul, Pope Paul VI and Patriarch Athenagoras at the time mutually lifted these excommunications back from the middle of the 11th century. So now the excommunications are gone, but unfortunately we still exist in this state of disunity. Now, all this is very important backstory. What happens in a few years, in about 40 years, a little less than 50 years, in the future, we'll see the rise of the Crusades. And the Crusades is a very interesting period of time in the history of the church and the history of Western civilization. Because most of us, we've been conditioned by our society, by Hollywood, and, and what we've learned in schools, that when we hear the word crusade, it's almost an immediate negative reaction. 
right? And usually the image that's kind of brought, the mental image that comes to our mind is this image of these, you know, Western knights, that, uh, these bloodthirsty, you know, hairy, barbarian type of looking Western knights had nothing better to do with their lives than to go thousands of miles away from their home and attack a peaceful, loving, very advanced Muslim civilization in the Middle East, right? I mean, that's pretty much how the Crusades are presented in our, in our modern world today. And all of that is absolutely historically false and inaccurate. So I usually teach at the graduate school, but I teach at the, the Notre Dame Graduate School at Christendom College, an entire semester course on the Crusades. So I don't have that time, obviously, tonight, um, 13 weeks to talk about the Crusades. I only have about 30 minutes. So we're going to go really fast through some of the major um, uh, events in the Crusades and some of the major aspects of the Crusading movement as a whole. Now, the Crusades are very, very interesting, because, and we really need to know about the Crusades because they occupy such a long period of time in Western European history and in the history of the Church. Depending on which historian you use and how you want to date them, they occupy anywhere from 500 to 700 years of Church history and of the history of the West. That's an exceptionally long period of time. That's double the length of the history of our own nation. So this is a movement that would very much was alive for a long period of time in Europe and occupied the imagination of Europe and of Europeans and of Catholics for an extremely long period of time. Interestingly enough, the word crusade is a modern word. That's a word that we've kind of used in order to describe what went on during this period of time. That was not a word that the contemporaries used. If you lived at that time, you never would use the word crusade. You'd never hear the word crusade. Instead, you would refer to the men who went on crusade as cruce signati, or those, who, those signed with the cross. Those signed with the cross. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, when we talk about the Crusades, it's important to talk about that there are many different forms of crusading. So most of us, when we hear the word crusade, we think of immediately Western Knights going off to the Middle East. But there were different, throughout this 500 to 700 year period of time, there were a multitude of different kinds and forms of crusades. Right, so it's important for us to keep in mind. Most of us think of those crusades to, against Muslims to the Holy Land and in Egypt. And those occupy eight numbered crusades, roughly from the year 1095 until um, the 13th century. All right? And so we'll look at some of those in more detail in a moment. Now, um, there are other forms of crusading. There are crusades that took place against the pagans in the northern part of Europe, what we call the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, those areas, Poland even, those areas of, of the world. There were crusades against enemies of the church, for example. One in particular, the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II, had a crusade proclaimed against him by one of the popes. So there was an engagement that was, that was kind of Christian, on, sort of Christian, so to speak, although Frederick II really was a heretic. But then we also have crusades against heretics. So, and in particular, there was a group of heretics in the south of France known as the Albigensians, or the Cathars, in the 13th century, where the church engaged in a crusade against them. So many different forms of crusading. I just bring that up to highlight that to you, so when you talk to someone about the crusades, you, can, you have to ask them, well, what are you specifically talking about? And did you know that there are different kinds and different forms? This is important to set the stage for that. Now, for an armed expedition, to, military expedition, to be considered a crusade, there were four main essential ingredients that had to take place. The first main ingredient is that an individual who participated voluntarily in the crusade had to take the cross. And what was meant by this is that if you took the cross, you actually had to take a vow. You took an ecclesiastically binding vow to go on crusade, to accomplish some aspect of the crusade. In the beginning, it was to go, you took a vow to go to the Holy Sepulcher, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem. That was your vow. And it was a binding vow, a vow you had to fulfill. 
And those who took that vow then put, actually put a cross on their garments. They actually took a, red a cloth cross, sewed it onto their garment, and that cross would not be taken off until they had actually completed their journey, until they had fulfilled their vow. So you had to take a vow. Right? The second essential ingredient for the crusade was that it had to be endorsed by the Pope. The Pope either had to call the crusade or had to endorse the calling of the crusade. Right? For an armed expedition to be considered one of these crusades, this is the second essential ingredient. The third essential ingredient is that if you went on crusade, you took the cross, you were granted certain privileges by the church and even by secular rulers. One of the main privileges that a crusader was able to receive by going on crusade was the protection of his family and his property by the church. Now, why that's important is, remember, this is a feudal period of time, and everything's based on land, right? And a knight has, you know, a certain amount of land that's under his control. And everyone on the land serves his own family and whatnot, or people that he was responsible for protecting. So if he leaves, and remember, going on the crusade was a voluntary thing. So if he leaves, that means that, you know, I could leave, but my neighbor might not leave. He might not take the cross. He might still be there. And wouldn't it be tempting for him to kind of come and take part of my land? while I'm away, or all of my land, while I'm away. Right? That's, a very, that's a very disconcerting thought. So in order to address that, the church said anyone who, that crusader lands would be protected, and anyone who tried to take a piece or all of a crusader's land while he was away would receive automatic excommunication. So there were ecclesiastical penalties against a secular issue or a secular event, you know, deciding to take somebody's land, could get you excommunicated in the church. Other privileges a crusader had was that a crusader was free from having to pay interest on any debt that he owed. So that was kind of, if you were in really bad financial straits, going on crusade might not have been a bad idea, right? Because you, would ha you wouldn't have to pay interest while you're on the crusade. Uh, you also were exempt from having to pay taxes. I mean, there are all kinds of different secular as well as ecclesiastical privileges that went along with being a crusader. And perhaps the single greatest privilege or the single greatest um, I, you know, event or I, thing that a, a crusader could receive by going on the crusades is an indulgence. That's the, other, that's the fourth essential ingredient, is that a, the Pope would promise a, a partial or a plenary indulgence for the, for the participation in a crusade. And that's very important, because when we'll talk a little bit about why people went on crusade, that is the single greatest reason why they went. The single greatest reason why they went was the ability to receive the, temp the remission of the temporal punishment due to their sins, whose guilt has already been forgiven in the sacrament of confession. Extremely important for crusaders. Now, some of us might think that crusading was kind of an aberration in the history of the church. You know, many of us don't like to talk about the crusades because we maybe feel a little bit of shame associated with them and how our modern world has portrayed them, um, you know, makes us kind of, I think, in a certain sense, feel that way. But actually, the church and crusading, the crusading movement was not an aberration in the history of the church. It was something that occupied the church for an extremely long period of time. From the 12th to the 17th centuries, you had Catholic bishops, including popes, calling for armed men to participate in this crusade to go and to fight against the enemies of the church. We'll talk more about those specifically in a moment. So all the way from Urban II to Innocent XI, they wrote letters urging the faithful to participate in these campaigns, and they offered the spiritual incentives that I mentioned, including in particular the indulgence. And there are even, of the 21 ecumenical councils in the history of the church, six of those councils actually legislated concerning crusades. So that's 28% of the entire, of all of the councils in the 2000 year history of the church at least discussed, had some major portion of their meeting dealing with the Crusades. That's extremely important. Now for us to really, before we can get into why people went on Crusade, what the Crusades were even more about, we have to figure out, we have to answer the question, 
initially, why were they called? Why were the Crusades called? The Crusades were called, really, in a certain sense, at least initially, as a reaction to the growth of the movement of Islam. Now, we all recall that Islam grew up as a movement, a very violent movement in the Arabian Peninsula in the 7th century, and then Muhammad, as the prophet who began this movement, had certain teachings that really kind of shaped his worldview. And the worldview that Muhammad had also then shaped how his followers behaved in the centuries after his death. Muhammad, some of his teachings involved this creation of a community and this, this creation of a worldview that really kind of separated the world into two different camps. For Muhammad, the world was comprised of all those who believed in Allah and in Muhammad as his prophet, and they lived in what was known as the House of Islam. And then everybody else who didn't believe in Allah and wasn't, didn't follow Muhammad as Allah's prophet lived in the House of War. So you had the House of Islam and the House of War. And so this automatically brought out this whole dichotomy in how, how Islam viewed the world. And it was the job of every Muslim through jihad to bring those in the house of war into the house of Islam. Toward the end of his life, he died in 632, but towards the end of his life, Muhammad gave a speech to his followers, a kind of a farewell address, it's recorded. And in this farewell address, he tells his followers, he gives them kind of their marching orders, tells them to do something, to, uh, you know, one of his last parting words to them. He says, to fight all men until they say there is no God but Allah. Fight all men until they say there is no God but Allah. Now contrast that, the words of Christ that we have recorded at the end of Matthew's Gospel when he ascends into heaven. Right? I mean, what did Jesus say? What did he tell his disciples to do? What mission did he give them? Go, teach, baptize, make disciples. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Two completely different ways of looking at the world. Islam and its fundamental teachings breaks the world, as I said, into these two different camps and, and then automatically brings about this kind of dichotomy in how the world is viewed and it really forces this kind of, it predisposes in a certain sense or preposes, um, predisposes this permanent state of war that exists between the two communities. It's very, very important. So what happens then after Muhammad dies, over the next several centuries, most of the ancient Christian lands in this part of the world are completely conquered and overrun by Islamic armies. So you have you know, the holy city of Antioch, the city where Christians first received the name Christian, where St. Peter was a bishop, was overrun and conquered by an Islamic army in the year 637. In 638, the holy city of Jerusalem itself fell. When the Muslim army came into Jerusalem, they destroyed over 300 Christian churches when they, when they conquered and captured the city. In the, last, in the year 700, the last Christian stronghold in North Africa had fallen to an Islamic army. Soon thereafter, they crossed the, the uh, Straits of Gibraltar into what is known as the Iberian Peninsula, into the modern-day nation-state of Spain, and they began the seven-year conflict to capture most of Spain from 704 to 711. There's just a small group in the northern part of Spain, the mountainous regions of Spain, that remains in Catholic hands. And then the, the people of Spain, over the next several centuries, over the, in the longest war in the history of humanity, will engage in a series of conflicts to win back the Iberian Peninsula and liberate their land from Islam. It takes them all the way into the year 1492. It's an extremely long period of conflict in that area. Ultimately, this, uh, an Islamic army crosses the Pyrenees in the 8th century from Spain and marches and launches into modern-day France. And they actually come within two hours' drive, 120 miles southwest of Paris. And they are met, though, at this Battle of Poitiers by a Frankish army under the command of a man by the name of Charles. And Charles was the mayor of the palace of the kingdom of Franks. And what that means, mayor of the palace, he wasn't the king of the Franks. 
He was the mayor of the palace, meaning he was, we would consider him to be like the prime minister of the government and also the commander-in-chief of the army. That's kind of what the role that he occupied. And so he and his Franks meet this army, this Muslim army, and they win a decisive victory, and they really prevent any further excursions from Spain, any permanent excursions from Spain into France. It's a very important and vital event in the history of Western civilization. And Charles, because he won this battle, was given, uh, was given a kind of a nickname or an, an appendage to his name. He's known in history as Charles Martel, because in French, Martel means hammer. So this battle, he hammered the Islamic army. Now, the Muslims refer to this battle as the Road of the Martyrs, because so many of their soldiers died participating in this campaign from Spain into France. All right, so just, I settle this up just briefly so we have a kind of understanding of what's going on and what's happening in, in these Islamic march, this imperialistic march, conquering these ancient Christian lands. All this comes to a head in the 11th century with the arrival of a certain groups of people in this area of the world, in the, in the Middle East and in what is modern-day Turkey. And this is the arrival of the Seljuk Turks. Now, the Seljuk Turks were Muslim, but they weren't from the Arabian Peninsula. They came down from the Asian steppe, and they come into what then was known as the Byzantine Empire, imperial province of Anatolia. But they come into what is modern-day Asia Minor, Turkey, they come into Anatolia and they engage in a very important battle in the year 1071 against the Byzantine Western, Eastern Roman Empire. And this is the Battle of Manzikert. And what happens is the Seljuk Turkish army overwhelmingly defeats the Byzantine army. So, and the emperor himself is even captured during the course of this battle. It's a resounding defeat for the Byzantines. And why this was very important for them is that the province of Anatolia was important for a couple different reasons. One, it, it was the place where they received most of their food. So most of their grain came from the province of Anatolia. So it was a huge loss for them um, economically and just from, from a food perspective, from a nutrition perspective. Also, Anatolia was very was, uh, important to them because it was the area where they received most of the recruits from their army. So this was a significant blow to the Byzantine Empire. Significant. So what happens as a result of this is that an emperor, a Byzantine emperor, after the battle, bless you, after this battle, will write a letter. And he'll write a letter to the most important and most powerful personage, personage in the western part of the world. And that person is Pope Gregory VII. So he writes a letter to Pope Gregory VII asking for the Pope to help marshal western knights, western military aid, and send it east to help him defend Byzantine, the Byzantine Empire, from this encroachment of the Seljuk Turks. And so we'll see that happen here. Gregory VII actually wasn't able to, he uh, came up with some plans in order to, to marshal some military force to send it over to the east, but he was dealing with a whole bunch of other more political problems in his, on his own um, backyard. He didn't really, wasn't able to see his plans through for this armed expedition off to the east. So it would be to one of his successors, and we'll talk about in a moment, to do it. Now we also have to think about, too, during this time, is that when the Seljuks came down and they took over Anatolia, they then pushed down and began to encroach upon the Holy Land. And things began to get a little bit more difficult for Christian pilgrims to Jerusalem during the, 11, the middle part of the 11th century and the latter part of the 11th century. So from the 4th century, Christians had always gone to uh, Jerusalem as an important pilgrimage site. And for the most part, during the course of that time, after Islam had arisen in the 7th century, they were for the most part just treated, you know, indifferently. But things, occasionally they were harassed. But in the 11th century, the harassment really ratchets up. In the early part of the 11th century, in 1009, there was an Egyptian Muslim caliph named Al-Hakim who ordered and followed through on the destruction of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. 
So the great church of the Holy Sepulcher that comprises, that was over the tomb of Christ, where Christ rose from the dead, was destroyed. The tomb, a church that was built by Constantine was destroyed in the early part of the 11th century on orders of this Egyptian Muslim caliph. That was a huge, huge blow in Western Europe. When news of that reached, especially in the land of France, it was a significant and saddening news that they received. They had great love and devotion for Jerusalem, as I'll talk about more in a moment. We also have accounts in the middle part of the 11th century here of Christian pilgrims going to Jerusalem and being massacred. There's one important um, kind of well-known event where 12,000 German pilgrims being led by their own bishop came onto, they were marching uh, and were progressing, processing near the the, uh, city of Jerusalem where they were set upon by a group of armed Muslims and were killed to a man, woman, and child. All 12,000 of them killed. So harassment really begins to pick up here in the 11th century. And especially under the Turks, the Seljuk Turks, things got even worse. So how how the West responds is that Pope Blessed Urban II travels to France, and he's going to attend a local meeting of French bishops. And this is the Council of Clermont. And it's the small C council. It's not one of the 21 ecumenical councils of the church. It's a small C council, just a local meeting of French bishops. He travels to go to this council, and it's at this council that he decides to preach the first crusade. Now, this is very, very unique and important for Urban to even travel outside of Rome. Most people never saw their bishop, let alone seeing the pope. You know, for the pope to come, I mean, we're all used to the pope taking multiple apostolic visits and going all over the world. John Paul II did it, that it continues to do it. We're used to that. People in this period of time were not used at all to seeing the pope traveling. So it was a huge, huge event. So what Urban does at the Council of Clermont is he decides that he wants to marshal these knights and go off and help um, reconquer and liberate this ancient Christian land from the Muslims. But he knows that he has a certain problem. He knows that he's really not going to be able to get Western knights motivated to travel a thousand miles away from their home, risking almost certain death through mostly disease and starvation rather than through actual combat, risking death to go and to help aid Eastern Christians who are in schism with the Pope. Right? No Western, self-respecting Western knight is going to risk his life to go halfway around the world at the time and fight in defense of the schismatic. This is not going to happen. Right? So Urban comes up with a better idea. He says, I'm not going to make the focus of the crusade helping the Eastern Byzantine Empire. Rather, the focus of the crusade will be on liberating the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Liberating the holy city of Jerusalem, which is the holy Christian city, from the hands of of, this, of, these, of the Muslims in the area. So he knew that that would really motivate these French knights and others because there was much devotion to the city during this time. I mentioned it was a place of great pilgrimage. We also know that during the 1060s, for example, we have records of girls in French, baby girls being born in France, who were given the name Jerusalem because the French had such a great devotion. There was such great popular devotion to the city in France at the time. So it was a very common and popular name uh, for little girls. This is also, what Urban also did, which is very unique, was that he decided to make the, the, and, and preach the crusade as a pilgrimage. And that's extremely important. The way to really understand and see the crusades is to see them as armed pilgrimages. And that's how the men and the soldiers and, and everyone who went on the crusade saw what they were doing. Was that what they were doing was going on this armed pilgrimage. They saw themselves as pilgrims. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, Urban then decides to take this this, uh, preaching of the crusade on the road, 
And he goes through then, you know, the southern part and the rest of France, traveling and preaching the crusade wherever he went. He also sent out other preachers to go around and preach the crusade as well. And his journey made a huge impression on the people. And he received a huge response from the call to the crusade. It's estimated that over 100,000 people took the cross as a result of Urban and other, preaching, other preachers preaching the First Crusade. 100,000 people. Now, to put that into statistics that we can kind of understand, the population of France, Italy, Germany, and England at the time, in the latter part of the 11th century, was about 20 million people. If you were to take the same statistics today, or for those same uh, countries, rather, it's about 264 million people. Populations of France, Italy, German, Germany, and England. So if you were to take the same ratio, 100,000 people back in 1095, apply it to the population of those countries today, it would, if the Pope were to call a crusade today, it would mean 1.3 million people took the cross. That just shows you the response from this. 1.3 million people. That's just amazing. Could you imagine that? I mean, 1.3 million people responding on, on the, the Pope asking us to do something very specific. Leave our homes, leave our families, and go someplace, you know, thousands of miles away. It's just it's amazing. Now, of the 100,000, it's estimated that 60,000 of the, the 100,000 were actually fighting men. Now, the Pope wanted only knights. He wanted only armed men. He wanted soldiers to go on the crusade. But there was such a fervor for the crusade because of the devotion to the city in France, of the holy city of Jerusalem in France, that so many other people also took the cross. Men, older men, women, uh, even younger boys and younger girls and things like that took the cross. That's not what the Pope wanted. He wanted only fighting men, but there was just this fervor that others also responded. It's estimated that of those who took the cross and actually made the journey to Jerusalem, over 80% never came home again. So most of those people who died, died through uh, disease, starvation, Lack, you know, lack of food, those kinds of issues, not actual, out of actual combat. It was a very perilous journey and a very difficult um, journey on this first crusade. Now, why was there such a huge response? Why would, why would 100,000 people voluntarily take the cross and decide to do something of such this great magnitude, something that had never really been done before en masse of this scale in European history before? Well, for, there's a couple different reasons. I mean, one reason is that laymen at the time, especially armed knights, thought that it was very difficult for them to go to heaven. That it was very, very difficult for, for them to go to heaven. There's this famous vision of a, the one priest had in France in the latter part of the 11th century in 1091. is the vision of Washaline. And Washaline, the priest, had this vision where he saw these dead knights pass before him, you know, in agony, in torment, holding on and clutching their swords, and their swords were red hot. And they could, their suffering was that they couldn't let go of these swords. So this, this vision was very popular, it was well known in France at the latter part of the 11th century, and so it helps to, to speak to us that people at this time, especially armed knights, found it extremely difficult because of their mode of life, because of what they the violence they participated in, because they, they knew they didn't live up to the Christian ideal, that somehow it was almost impossible for them to attain salvation and to go to heaven. They were also obviously tempted by many different things in the world. The church constantly kind of warned them that their warfare against other Christians placed their souls in danger. And so many of these knights truly, really desired to perform penance for all of their sins, and that's why most of them were actually motivated to go on the crusade. Now, they really saw what they were doing by participating in this armed pilgrimage as a penitential act. 
That's how it was presented and preached to them, and that's how they understood it, that what they were doing was going on, was participating in an act of penance. Just like prayer and fasting and almsgiving are acts of penance, for a Western knight at this period of time in the history of the church, going on a crusade was an act of penance. It was revolutionary. And they went, as I said, because they wanted to receive this indulgence. They wanted to make, to make restitution for their sins. Blessed Urban II said this at the Council of Clermont about the indulgence. He said, if any man sets out to free the church of God at Jerusalem out of pure devotion and not out of love for glory or gain, the journey shall be accounted a complete penance on his part. So the granting of a plenary indulgence if he went on this armed pilgrimage. Now the crusaders believed that they were participating in a just war. Because one of the aspects of the just war is the, the res restoration of property and the defense of, of a nation, or the defense of a people. And they believed that what they were doing was going and liberating these lands, lands that had been Christian, from the Muslims. And so it was a war of restitution, not a war of colonization. It was not, a war, uh, it was not an offensive war in their minds. It was a defensive war, a war to restore property that had once been in Catholic and Christian hands. Now, who could go? For the most part, as I said, Urban wanted fighting men to go. He wanted either knights, armed knights, or he, you know, uh, archers, or other kinds of, of soldiers. Not necessarily, um, you know, men, women, and children, so to speak. Interestingly enough, too, he passed a, a, one of the restrictions on going on this crusade was that if you were married, you had to receive your wife's permission. Isn't that interesting? You had to receive your wife's permission before you could go on crusade. Now, why was that? Well, the church recognized that again, the man had certain responsibilities during this period of time in feudal society. You know, overseeing and, and uh, making sure that the property was, was kept up, that work was being performed, the crops were, were growing and being planted and harvested. So it was very, very, there were a lot of responsibilities. So when the man left, then all that responsibility would be placed on the shoulders of his wife. And the church wanted to ensure that both spouses recognized that that, that would happen, that transfer of responsibility would happen, and that also that you know, both parties, both spouses were, were aware that it was very likely that this, the soldier, the man, would die or could die on the crusade. So they wanted, they wanted to make sure that it was a decision that was mutually reached. So you had to receive permission to go. Now, interestingly enough, in the future, Pope Innocent III will change that. He'll get rid of that restriction. Because men were using it as an excuse to not go on crusade. You know, you can imagine, I'd say, Holy Father, I'd really love to go to the Holy Land, but you know, I got this honeydew list, I got all this stuff to do around the manor, I just, I can't, I can't go, I'm sorry. You know, maybe if I get through the list, I can go then, right? And so Innocent said, no, forget that. We're, we're done. You don't have to receive your wife's permission to go or not. Now, why did these people go? Again, they didn't go for booty, for plunder, for many of the things that, that we hear about in our world today. They went truly because they loved for their love of Christ, and they were concerned for their own salvation. One crusader, a man by the name of Odo of Burgundy, wrote this. He said, I undertook the journey to Jerusalem as a penance for my sins, since divine mercy inspired me that owing to the enormity of my sins, I should go to the sepulcher of our Savior. Now they went truly because they were concerned for their own salvation. They thought and they believed what they were doing was participating in this penitential act, an act the church had called them to perform, to utilize their vocation as warriors for Christ. Very, very important why they went. Now, does that mean everybody who went on, on crusade and every single uh, soldier was a saint? No. Obviously not, right? I mean, our country is engaged in, in warfare currently, and we know from the history of armies that there are people in armies that are, that are motivated by, to do the good and, you know, respecting uh, others and to follow the rules of law, of warfare, and there are those that don't, right? That's happened in every army, in every age of history. 
But for, the, but for us to kind of think of these crusaders as motivated, as many people do, as motivated out of greed or out of, uh, for land or money or wealth is just really erroneous. That's not why they went. That's not why they, they truly um, went and did, undertook such a huge expense to go. It was very, very costly for these men to go on crusade. It's estimated it cost the man over four times his annual income to go on crusade. So take, take what you make mentally in your head. Right now, times it by four. That's how much it would cost for you to go on this armed pilgrimage. It's extremely expensive. Warfare is extremely expensive. We know that very well in our own day and age. And for the most part, at least the beginning of the crusading movement, crusaders had to bear that cro- the, the cost on their own. Many of them had to sell their own lands in order to, to finance their expedition to the, to the east. Most of them came home extremely broke. They came back with less than what they actually had, those who lived. Most people who also went on a crusade actually came back home. They didn't stay. Some did. Right? There's this kind of thought that goes around the modern world that the crusades were about western colonization of the, of the Holy Land and that really this was a land grab. And the historical record proves that that's completely false because the vast majority of crusaders, as I mentioned, went home. They didn't stay. They didn't take land. They didn't stay in, in the Holy Land and take land. Why? Because they were on pilgrimage. Right? You and I, we go on pilgrimages. We don't go to stay. We go to Rome. We go to Santiago de Compostela in Spain or we go to Jerusalem. We don't go and stay. We go, we visit the shrine, and then we come home, right? True today, true then. That's exactly what they were doing. Now, the first crusade, just briefly, I'll talk about a couple of important crusades. The first crusade was the only really successful crusade. This is a crusade that a multitude of miraculous things happened to the crusaders during the course of this expedition. Um, I mean, really, the story of the first crusade could occupy a four-part presentation on its own or even a two-part presentation. This is such an immense story, so many things going on, so many miraculous events. The Crusaders in many different areas, many different times during the Crusade, it looked as if they were just going to completely founder, that they were going to be conquered, or the army was going to just be destroyed. And in each of these cases, a miraculous event occurs, which just propels them on to victory and brings them closer to their goal of liberating the holy city of Jerusalem, which they're able to do in the year 1099. It was really the only successful Crusade. They were able to liberate the city of Nicaea, where the first ecumenical council occurred in the 4th century. They liberated the holy city of Antioch, and they also liberated the city of Jerusalem. As a result of the first crusade, we have in history what's known as the establishment of the crusader states. Basically, these four different areas, kind of feudal areas in the Middle East that were occupied by these um, different uh, you know, lords and dukes and, and even a king down in the kingdom of Jerusalem for a small period of time. The first crusader state was established in 1098, the last state uh, was overthrown in 1291. So for less than 300 years, little, little over 200 years, were the Crusader states in existence. Occupy a very small period of time of history, in, of Islamic history and of the history of this area of the world. Another crusade that we're probably all very familiar with is the Third Crusade. This is the famous Three Kings Crusade because it was the crusade participated by the King of France, the time Philip II, the King of England, Richard I, the Lionheart, as well as the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. And the whole reason why the Third Crusade was called was that in the year 1187, a Muslim general by the name of Saladin, or Salahaddin, unites the two parts of the Islamic world that were in this area of the world at the time. When the First Crusaders came down in the latter part of the 11th century, the Islamic world was disunited. There was a lot of infighting among two different camps of Muslims uh, that were living in this part of the world. But in 1187, Saladin unites them, with the goal of pushing the Crusaders out. 
And so in 1187, he wins a great battle called the Horns of Hatton. And then he marches on to Jerusalem and captures the holy city from the Christians. News of this reached Europe. It was a devastating news. And so the army, these armies under these three kings were, was marshaled to go to the Holy Land and to try to recover the holy city. Now, this is the crusade that's been presented or mispresented in many different movies throughout the history of Hollywood. There was a movie that occurred about five years ago that came out called Kingdom of Heaven. Anybody see that movie? Did you see that movie? Yeah. If you didn't, praise God, you didn't see it. Uh, and don't waste your time seeing it because it is really not only historically inaccurate, but it's also a really bad movie, uh, to be frank. It, just, it, it stars Orlando Bloom, who many of you know from Pirates of the Caribbean. He is Will Turner, who's also Legolas the Elf in uh, Lord of the Rings. It also stars Jeremy Irons, fantastic actor, as well as um, uh, Liam Neeson. Who Liam Neeson's character is like the one redeeming great character in the film, and he's dead within the first 15 minutes. So from there, the movie really goes extremely downhill. Now, also the Third Crusade, or kind of a little bit about the Third Crusade, was talked about in, the, in a recent movie that came out, Robin Hood, a movie with Russell Crowe. I just recently uh, rented that and saw that. And that uh, is a movie that's actually more entertaining than Kingdom of Heaven, but it's full of so many historical inaccuracies, it's not even funny. Um, as you watch the film, you're just, no, that didn't happen. No, that didn't happen. That's not right. I mean, it's just n dramatized to the point where it's completely false. Um, what always kills me about these movies about this period of time and about Richard the Lionheart in particular is that Richard the Lionheart was king of England for about 10 years, but he only lived, of that 10 years, he only lived six months in England. He spent most of his time in France, and actually, he never spoke English. He never learned English. He only spoke French. So it's funny how Hollywood always portrays Richard the Lionheart as this, you know, with this British actor, with this great British accent, and it's just even that is historically inaccurate. The man didn't know a word of English. But anyways, the Third Crusade falls apart for the most part. It's only partially successful. Frederick Barbarossa drowns crossing a river in Anatolia. His troops then disperse and, and try to make their way back to Germany. Most end up being uh, are killed uh, in different uh, skirmishes and battles. Philip II participates in one siege, the city of the city of Accra. And then he really has eyes on many of uh, Richard's French holdings. So Philip II leaves early and goes back and tries to take over some of Richard's lands in France. And then Richard stays in the Holy Land for a number of years, engages Saladin in battle, and ultimately is able to to enter into a truce with Saladin to allow Christians free access to the city, but is never actually able to liberate the city with his army. So as I mentioned, the last crusader state falls in the year 1291, and the crusader states are gone in less than 200 years. So we have this notion in our modern world about the crusades and about how they have impacted the uh, Muslim mind, and that's one of the reasons why Islam or parts of Islam are so upset with the West today. You know, we even have people like Osama bin Laden and others who use crusader words and imagery. They call us the crusaders, and they refer to the West you know, as the land of the crusaders. And there's some thought that you know, how that's usually explained is, well, they're upset about what happened. And actually, that's really not true at all. Because that whole idea of, of Islam being upset at the West because of the crusades didn't really come into Islamic consciousness until the 20th century. The first... Uh, Islamic crusade, or the first crusade, story of the crusades, history of the crusades, written by an Islamic author, didn't appear until the year 1899, so the very end of the 19th century. For the most part, Saladin himself, the great uniter of Islam during this period of time, and, and the one who reconquered the city, was mostly forgotten, for the most part, until the latter part of the 19th century by the Islamic world. Uh, so it's very, this is a new thing. Why it comes about is that in the 20th century, after the Second World War, uh, especially the countries of uh, Britain and France, when they come into the Middle East and they, they colonize that area after the Second World War and they take over that land, they, they brought with them, erroneously, this kind of crusader imagery. 
Uh, and so it began to arise among the Islamic consciousness at the time that, oh, you know, this, what we're suffering through now economically, militarily, and culturally in the, in the 20th century really is just you know, a, a re-manifestation of what happened back in the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries, when that really wasn't the case, not historically the case at all. So that kind of brings us to the, to the time of the end of our, uh, our time period here of the Crusades. And I, there's one more story I want to mention to you before we finish up tonight. And we're going to go halfway around the world and go and look at a little event that happens with one of our fellow brothers in the Lord, St. Thomas Becket. This is a fantastic story, and it's, it really kind of illustrates what's going on in the church, or one area of the church, at this period of time. Now, Thomas Becket, as most of us know, or hopefully most of us know, is a close and trusted friend of the King of England. The King of England at the time is Henry II. Henry II had a little problem with the church in England. Uh, he wanted to control the church in England. Well, when, next week, or maybe in two weeks, we'll find another Henry who also wants to control the church in England. He's a little more successful than this Henry. But this Henry wants to control the church in England because he's upset. And why he's upset is because there was a custom in England at the time that if a member of the clergy, a bishop, a priest, a deacon, committed a secular crime or committed a crime against the crown, he was tried not in the king's court, but in the ecclesiastical or the church court. So a clergy member commits a secular crime, he's tried in the church court under church law, not in the king's court under the king's law. And the king was upset with that because everyone knew that church courts were much more lenient than secular courts. And so he was upset that many clerics are committing these serious crimes and they're getting away with what he thought were lighter type of sentences. Right? Maybe imprisonment instead of death. Because canon law forbid putting anyone to death. You could not put anyone to death uh, under canon law. There was no vehicle for capital punishment in canon law at the time. And so he was upset with that. He wanted to change that. So he had a golden opportunity in 1162 when the Archbishop of Canterbury dies. And he decides to, to recommend to the Holy Father that he appoint his trusted and closest friend, Thomas Becket, to be Archbishop of Canterbury. And so the Pope agrees with that, and Thomas is made Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, before he became Archbishop, Thomas was kind of a playboy. He hung out with Henry. They did all kinds of crazy things, as young men do. And he was not really oriented towards you know, living a Christian life. But upon his ordination and consecration, he really changed. He had a really, truly authentic conversion to Christ and began to take extremely seriously his vocation. And so when the king came to him and said, all right, I want you to change this custom. I want to try clerics in my courts. Thomas Beckett said, no, not going to do that. We're going to maintain the independency of the church, and we're going to maintain this custom. That greatly upset uh, Henry, so much so that Thomas had to flee England, spend some time on the continent, even made his way down to Rome to meet with the, uh, with the Pope. Ultimately, though, Thomas in 1170 comes back to England, and when he comes back to England, actually, Henry is in Normandy campaigning, and he's in this, uh, you know, a after one day of battle, he's in his tent, and he's, uh, he's drinking a bit, you know, he's, he's kind of feasting, drinking with his knights, some of his closest knights, some of his closest friends, four knights. And he turns to them and he says, he utters some of the most famous words in history, he says, will no one rid me of this low-born priest? You know, complaining about Thomas and complaining about he's not, what he's, he's not doing what I want him to do. So these four knights kind of take it upon themselves, well, we've received orders from the king. We're going to go do something about Thomas. So they get in a boat, and they cross a channel, they go to Canterbury, and in December of 1170, the end of December of 1170, they march into Canterbury Cathedral, and they strike him down and martyr him. And this was, obviously, when the news reached Henry that his friend Thomas had died, he was greatly disturbed. He was really greatly disturbed, and it really, really affected him horrifically. He actually, four years after Thomas's death, he participated in a public act of penance. And this is what he did. He walked to Canterbury Cathedral barefoot. 
He wore a penitential hair shirt. He actually walked into the cathedral, kissed the pillar where Becket was struck down. Then he allowed himself, this is the king of England, he allowed himself to be publicly whipped by several bishops and abbot and 80 monks as an act of atonement for his participation in the death of this great archbishop, uh, this saint uh, of the church, this martyr of the church. The four knights also were filled with remorse and regret as a result of their participation in, in, uh, in their killing of Thomas. They eventually make their way down to Rome. They meet with the Holy Father. They ask his forgiveness in the sacrament of confession. They, he re, they receive absolution as their penance. They are ordered to join one of the military religious orders in the Holy Land and protect Christian pilgrims, which they then do. Within a few years, all four of them had died in the service of these Christian pilgrims and in the service of the Crusader states. If you've never seen the movie Beckett, I encourage you to watch that movie. It's a fantastic movie. It's dramatized, obviously, as Hollywood does it, but it tells the story of Henry II and Thomas Beckett. And Henry II is played by Peter O'Toole, a fine and wonderful actor. Richard Burton, uh, Richard Burton plays um, St. Thomas Beckett. And I think Sir Richard Burton does a fantastic job of, of showing this conversion, this authentic conversion that uh, Beckett actually had. So I encourage you to get that movie um, on Netflix. It's a fantastic film. Dramatized, not totally historically accurate, but a very, 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 very good film. And so next week, I think we'll, we'll meet up again. Uh, I know the tradition is to have a brief break and then some maybe a five-minute time for questions. But next week, we'll continue our story with the time period of Crusaders and Scholars, and we'll look at St. Dominic and St. Francis, and then we'll also look at the Scholastics, and we'll get into our next time period where things begin to go really downhill for the church in what I, the time period I call weak leaders and schism. If you want, before we take our break, if you want a good book, a very good resource on the Crusades, I highly encourage you to get this book and read this one. It's by Thomas Madden. It's called The New Concise History of the Crusades. Thomas Madden is the director of the, religious, of the medieval and, and renaissance studies at St. Louis University. He's a fantastic Catholic scholar, internationally recognized in his field. This book, he kind of gives you a nice summary and survey of the crusading movement. He looks at all the, the eight traditionally numbered crusades of, of Western Knights in the Holy Land and Egypt against Muslims. It's a fantastic work. He also goes into great detail of talking about why this whole modern notion that Islam is upset with the West because of the Crusades is completely false. I covered that in like two sentences. He goes into much greater detail, obviously, to talk about it. It's a fantastic work. Highly recommend it for you as well. There's another resource that I have as well. If you, I'll pass this around so you guys can take a look at it. Another resource, if, if you go onto my EPIC website, and here's the address. It's ourcatholichistory.com. If you go onto the EPIC website, you can go to a little tab at the top. It's, it's the download tab. Go on that tab, and all we do is ask you to register on the website. Just type in your email address is all we ask for. And once you've registered, you're able to then download free certain resources that we have on there for you. And one resource I have is a fact sheet on the Crusades that goes through the five major modern myths that people have about the Crusades, and I answer them with historically accurate information. And you feel free to copy that, download it, copy it as much as you want, hand it out to whoever you want, and use it in any way that you, that you want to. So I encourage you to do that. It's another resource for you. So, Sabatino. Thank you, Steve. So. Before we get to the questions, I do just want to point out someone brought to my attention during the break, and I, I thank him for it, was that I, I misspoke when I talked about the, um, when Islam began to associate you know, modern understanding of Islam and, and its, uh, the effects of the Crusades. I said it was after the Second World War when the, France and Britain colonized that area. It was after the First World War, so I misspoke. 
in that area. Not the second, but the first. So just to point that out. All right, fire away. It sounds like from the lecture this evening that the church really um, did great things during this period. Mm -hmm. But if my mind serves me correctly, mm -hmm. um, wasn't this also in world history known as the Dark Ages? And how did that mm -hmm. come about? Yeah, good question. Uh, actually, no, I mean, the Dark Ages are a huge misnomer. Um, to be honest. But no, it actually, the Dark Ages usually technically refers to a much earlier period of time. It refers to the period of time after Charlemagne, really around the 8th century, up until, you know, 8th and 9th century, and leading into the 10th century. That's really kind of when people consider the Dark Ages. Some historians even date it further, you know, on the other side, with the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century. That's kind of when some begin to date it. Uh, there's no consensus necessarily, but the Dark Ages is also a misnomer. I mean, it's that because when we hear it's a mental image again, when we hear the word or the phrase Dark Ages, we think, oh, well, this is, again, you know, bloodthirsty barbarians, you know, with meat hanging off their teeth, you know, kind of crawling around like Neanderthals in Europe and nothing was going on. I mean, you know, during the so-called Dark Ages, you had people like St. Bede, you know, the Venerable Bede in, in England living, you know, a man of absolutely no intelligence whatsoever. I mean, no, of course not. <laughs> you know, I mean, people, so it's just that, that whole understanding is, is just... Um, it's, it's meant to, it was meant to try to describe the period of time from the fall of, of the Western Roman Empire to you know, the rise of the more um, you know, kingly kingdoms during the feudal period of time. And how do we explain this period of time, this kind of this vast amount of centuries in between those two events? Uh, and that's, they've labeled it Dark Ages. But it's, it's again, a misnomer, a bad, bad term. Talk a little bit about the attitude of the common man at the time of the Crusades, mm -hmm. penance, indulgence, that sort of thing. How about uh, daily uh, communion? Uh, how many times do you go to Mass each month? You know, mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, good question. Um, you know, the culture at the time was, the Catholic culture at the time, was not that you would receive frequent communion. I mean, it wasn't that like you would go to Mass every day and receive communion. Not that you would even receive communion, you know, once a week. I mean, everyone participated in the liturgy on Sunday. That was expected, that was understood, and that was as it is today. Um, you know, but, but in terms of, of, you know, frequent reception of communion, that, that was not, that's actually kind of a later development in, in the history of the church, to be frank. Uh, it really took off uh, during the time period of the Catholic Reformation when the, with the rise of the Jesuits. It's one of the big things that the Jesuits did, actually, was they began to foster on, on Catholic consciousness this idea of frequenting the sacraments, especially the sacrament of the Eucharist. That's why this was such a significant thing, in order to receive an indulgence for these armed knights. Because I didn't mention this, but um, to even go on a pilgrimage, if you were a knight, you had to leave your weapons at home. Pilgrims, people who went on pilgrimages in the Middle Ages, there were a lot of you know, different kind of cultural custom and then also ecclesial rules that governed going on a pilgrimage. And if you were a knight, you could not take your weapons. You had to dress, as you're a nobleman too, you had to dress extremely simply. You had to you know, carry just a, a staff. Um, you know, uh, the clothes on your back, maybe one change, small purse. Um, you know, you could not travel extravagantly and you couldn't take your weapons. So for a man who was raised from boyhood to do nothing but, you know, participate in the martial arts, for him to, to leave his weapons at home, to not be a warrior for even a short period of time or even a long period of time to go on pilgrimage was a significant thing. So it was not, not many warriors actually did participate in this whole age of pilgrimage either until the Crusades. Was there much of a competition between the Eastern and Western churches in Eastern Europe, Poland, and, and that area, and into Russia? Well, during this period of time? I mean, this is a good question. I mean, it's, it's, uh, was there much competition? I mean, there had always been this tension over the, la over the centuries, you know, from the time of Diocletian up until the split, over missionary activity. I mean, there was, there was even, you know, conflict and, and um, 
before then, before this period of time. So during this period of time, um, I don't, not, not so much. You know, it was, it was the Western world at this time was focused more kind of on itself uh, and then became more engaged in, in Eastern affairs as a result of the Crusades. Um, but really as a result of the split, you know, but even before the split, I should say the result of it, but, as a re but before the split, the two halves, you know, geographically, culturally, politically, economically, were really moving in opposite directions and had been for centuries. You mentioned how large the, uh, the first crusade was, about 100,000. Mm -hmm. How large were the second and third crusades? Yeah, that's an excellent question. They, they, uh, the numbers dwindle, uh, and it depends on the crusade. I mean, the third crusade was actually fairly significant in size because you had three large contingents, and they were led by kings. When you study the history of the crusades, when you have a, a major important personage like a king going on crusade, you usually get a pretty big turnout. Um, when you don't, you get a fairly large, or a fairly small turnout. So like the Fourth Crusade, for example, the, the, the crusade that went awry, the, the crusade that ultimately ended up uh, sacking Constantinople and causing all kinds of mayhem and mischief, um, that crusade, really the, one of the reasons why they even sacked the city of Constantinople is because they didn't get enough knights to show up in Venice uh, in order to take transport. So they had contracted with the city of Venice to build a certain number of ships, and they had a significantly less number of knights show up. And so Venice had basically indebted themselves by building all of these ships, expecting the knights to pay them. Not enough knights showed up because there was no major personage leading this, this, con this uh, crusade. And so they ended up having to um, pay off their debt by first attacking the Christian um, city of Varna, and then they went and attacked uh, Constantinople as well. So that's what happens. It's like today. I mean, if you have a famous celebrity you know, or, or a famous person leading a pilgrimage, right? I know if, if Sabatino was leading a pilgrimage to uh, Athens, we'd all go, right, into the Mediterranean. But if, uh, if I was leading one, you might not want to go, you know, or something like that. So it all depends on who's, who's leading. Thank you very much, yeah, Thank Steve. you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.